So tomorrow is Reformation Day. Today is Reformation Sunday. Tomorrow is also commonly known as Halloween. I want to encourage you as a Christian to not surrender even one day to the enemy. Not even one day. Halloween is not the day Christians should uh, hunker down in their homes and retreat, waiting for the day to pass. Christians should be out about celebrating what this day represents. Since 1567, we call it Reformation Day. But even before then, there was a reason why Martin Luther nailed that thesis on that All Hallows' Eve day on the church door of Wittenberg Castle. And so we as Christians celebrate Christ and the victory of Christ, and that victory of Christ has vanquished all of our enemies, even the ones the world and fearful Christians like to point out on Halloween. They're vanquished. We don't even know their names anymore. We don't even remember them anymore. Why? Because this is and tomorrow is the day the Lord has made. And we should rejoice and be glad in it. So, you kids, I hope you mock death and the forces of darkness tomorrow, that day called Halloween, and celebrate the victory of Christ over death. Amen? and over the forces of darkness. Today is Reformation Sunday. It marks that day 505 years ago on October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the castle door of Wittenberg in Wittenberg, Germany. October 31st became Reformation Day, I believe 1567, somewhere around there, maybe even before then. It's the day that marked the beginning of the Reformation of the church, which is more commonly known as the Protestant Reformation. Today, as we continue through Paul's letter to Titus, we will see that the doctrines of the Reformation did not begin with the words of Martin Luther. The doctrines that birthed the Reformation are the very doctrines found in the words of Scripture, It is the word of God that brings reformation, and may he reform us again, even today, in his grace. Amen? Amen. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15 is our text today. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. In the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the gospel. 
And Lord, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, take this good news and mold us and shape us. Lord, let our minds be renewed to your truth by your Spirit, that we would be a people conformed to the very image of the Son of God, that we would be a witness to you in this earth of your glory, testifying to the grace that has brought salvation, that grace that has appeared to all men, that grace who has a name, and his name is Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, in that name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. As Reformed Protestants, we hold to what is known as the five solas of the Reformation. Just in quick review, they are sola scriptura, which is scripture alone or God's word alone is our authority. Sola fide or faith alone. Sola gratia or grace alone. Sola Christo or solus Christus is Christ alone. And solo de gloria or to the glory of God alone. These five points formulated out of the Reformation guide us still today as Protestant Christians. The five solas of the Reformation inform us and remind us that our final authority is in the Scripture alone and that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and it is all to the glory of God alone. This evokes shouts of grace, grace to it. Zechariah 4.7 Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. This is the finished capstone of God's grace revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Today, as we begin in Titus 2.11, we begin with the grace of God. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, the grace of God. All we are and all we have is by His grace alone, period. Without grace, we have absolutely no hope in this life, and we have no hope, certainly, in death. God is graceful, and he sheds his grace abroad to all men. There are two categories of grace I want to touch on this morning as we work through these verses in Titus, and that is the common grace of God and the saving grace of God. God's common grace. Let's talk about that. The common grace of God is shed abroad to all men, providing life and light to all born into this world. His common grace is not given based on merit. Nothing of God's grace is given based on merit. For no one can merit his grace. The rain that falls on the just and the unjust is an example of God's common grace. 
His grace is given to all because he is good, he is kind, he is graceful, and because God loves his children. That's why it rains on the just and the unjust. The creation itself is an example of God's common grace for all humanity, for the believer and the unbeliever alike. God's common grace is experienced and witnessed in his creation. Creation testifies that he is. His invisible attributes are clearly seen, even understood by the things that are made. This is what Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The scripture teaches that his invisible attributes are not only clearly seen, but they are understood by the things that are made by him. Thus, the creation itself even reveals his eternal power and Godhead. So it is said, the outward creation is not the parent, but the interpreter of our faith in God. Because of this graceful witness, Paul declares that all men are without excuse. Therefore, the grace of God we call common is experienced by all men. His invisible attributes that are clearly seen in the things that are made are part of his grace. The fact of his grace is a testimony to him and not unto us. Psalm 115.1, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. We all experience God's common grace, every human being that comes into this world is a recipient, a benefactor of God's common grace. Let's talk about God's saving grace. Titus 2.11 again. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The saving grace of God is the grace that brings salvation. Most significantly, Jesus Christ is the grace of God that brings salvation, and he has appeared to all men. Jesus did all, he did all openly. He lived his life openly. Everything he did, he did it openly before men. Think about it. In his birth, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, even in his ascension to the Father. He did all openly as a witness to all men. Jesus did nothing in secret. He said nothing in secret. He said it openly for all to see, for all to hear. God's common grace that is given to all men is not the same as God's saving grace that has appeared to all men. 
All men receive God's common grace, but only God's elect will receive his saving grace. God's grace bringing salvation has appeared to all men in Jesus Christ, but it has not been gifted to all men. In Christ alone is God's saving grace made manifest to shine forth. In Christ alone is God's saving grace given to his elect, chosen in him before the foundation of the world according to his grace and the good pleasure of his will. Ephesians chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ is the revelation of God's saving grace. This is the grace that has appeared to all men. Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. In other words, grace teaches us how to live. The grace that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. God has revealed his saving grace to us in Jesus Christ, and through that grace, he teaches us. His grace not only saves us, but it instructs us as well. Our being saved demands our being taught. His grace teaches us in Christ so that we learn obedience for our good and for his glory. So our being saved demands that we are taught just like a child being born demands that that child be raised up, taught, and instructed. To confess to be a disciple of Jesus is to confess to follow in the way of Jesus. It implies obedience to Christ and his teachings. This is, not, this is at the heart of the Great Commission and the command of Christ to go and to make disciples of all the nations. This is the heart of our Great Commission. This is the heart of what it means to go to the nations and make disciples. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, this familiar verse of Scripture begins with these words from Jesus. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When we read the Great Commission, it, sure, it should remind us of two instances, two very important instances recorded for us in the Word of God. When we read the Great Commission, it should take us back to the very Garden of Eden at creation when God gave the mandate to man, to the man and to the woman, to go forth, to be fruitful and to multiply and to take dominion of the earth. The other place it should remind us of in the word of God is when God brings the children of Israel to the entrance of the promised land and he commands them to go into that land of promise and to take that land from the nations that were possessing it. 
And God said, go, and I will give you the land. And Israel was to systematically go and take that land back from the nations that were in possession of it. That was God's command to them. This is exactly what the Great Commission commands us to do. It commands us to go into the earth, to fill it, to take dominion of it for the glory of God, that the glory of God, that the image of God's glory would fill the earth. And where is that image seen? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, it's seen in the face of Jesus Christ. And who is our identity? Who is the one that, that we can come to the Father in and be loved by the Father in? It is in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are his body. He is the head. So we are the body of Christ commanded to go now into the world and disciple the nations, not for a small piece of real estate in the Middle East, but for the entirety of God's creation, for this entire world. We are to take this world for Christ. That is what God commands us to do. That is what Jesus commands his church to do. That is what the Great Commission is about. Jesus declares his authority in heaven and on earth. Our battle, Paul says, is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, against the rulers of darkness, the host of wickedness in heavenly places. Well, Jesus has defeated them. Jesus has overcome them. Their realm is in the heavenlies. And God's authority has been given to Christ. All authority has been given to Christ in the heavenlies and on earth. And now we who live on the earth, we who are in the world, though we're not of the world, we are now to go in this earth, in this world, in the authority given to us by Jesus Christ, and we are to take those nations, disciple them, that they would be God's children, and that this entire world would manifest God's kingdom. So this authority in heaven and on earth means that Jesus now rules supreme over the entire created order, visible and invisible, carnal and spiritual, seen and unseen, over all powers and principalities and rulers on the earth and in the heavens. That is the authority that's been entrusted to us in Jesus Christ. Notice the command of Christ, go and make disciples of all the nations. Jesus commands we do this by going to them, baptizing them, and teaching them to obey all things he has commanded. We are to go teaching them to obey Christ. We're not suggesting that they obey Christ. We are commanding them to obey Christ. It's been said the gospel is not what we share with people. The gospel is what we proclaim and command to people. You'll never find the Bible, language in the Bible that we share the gospel. I can share my cake with you and you can eat it if you want to or not. No, no, no big deal. But the gospel is not something we share and if you don't take it, no big deal. No, we are commanded to proclaim the gospel because if you do not receive the gospel, you do not receive life. 
And you have no hope in this life, and you have no hope in death. So God commands his church, his body, to go forth and command men that they believe in Jesus. Jesus commands we do this, teaching them to obey Christ. The grace of God in Jesus Christ has appeared to all men, teaching us that we are to be denying ungodliness and worldly lust while we are living soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That means in the daily things we do, we are to be learning and obeying and glorifying his name. In the daily things we do, we are to be living soberly, watchful, vigilant. We can't do that if we're not sober. And so God commands us to be sober. That's why I always tell people who ask me, not infrequently, Pastor, is it a sin to drink? No, it's not a sin to drink. It's a sin to be drunk. It's a sin to not be sober. And you should err on the side of caution, not throw caution to the wind when you're trying to decide what's sobriety and what's not sobriety. You can't figure that out. Then err on the side of caution is my advice. More than being taught how to live, listen church, we are being taught who our life is. We talked about this today in Sunday school. If you know that Christ is your life, if you know that Christ lives in you and Christ is your life, knowing how you are to live is going to fall into place. But there are a lot of people out there trying to live for God, trying to please God, and they have no clue who God is. They believe in false religions, false belief systems. They follow false ways. They believe all kinds of wacky things, trying to please God, and they don't even know who God is. And God is not someone who who exists somewhere out there in the stratosphere The God we serve, the God who saved us, is the God who is our life, who dwells in us. We abide in him, and he abides in us. And when you, Christian, know that Christ is your life, you're going to know how you are to live your life and what you are to do with your life. And that doesn't mean life doesn't come with struggles, because it does. Because surrendering to God, our life, is not an easy thing to do always. But it is a necessary thing to do. Christ will be manifest in our living when we understand that Christ is our life. In this way, we are proving that Christ indeed is is our life in this present age and for eternity as his life is made manifest through us. Titus 2, 12, 13, uh, 12 and 13, teaching us. Grace is teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
In the construction of this verse, the words hope and appearing are connected together. Therefore, we are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing, or more accurately, not the glorious appearing, but more accurately, the appearing of his glory. Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of his glory. In other words, what we're looking for will be realized together with the manifestation of his glory. Our hope will be fully realized. This is talking about the final return of Jesus Christ. This is not speaking of a dispensational rapture, though I have good brothers who believe that it absolutely is. And we can disagree and we can talk about those disagreements. But I believe that what Paul is writing here to Titus is not about an appearing of the Lord that will usher the church out of the earth, but it is the appearing of the Lord that will result in the Lord finally returning to this earth Revealing the fullness of his glory and us coming into the fullness of our inheritance in Christ as we rule and reign with him on this earth. With the manifestation of his glory, our hope will be fully realized. And we are to live looking forward with that expectant hope in view. Christ will return one day. It's very likely that many of us will go to him before he comes to us. But one way or the other, you will meet him, I will meet him, and we will stand before him and give an account. And Titus, Paul is writing to Titus here, and he's exhorting Titus, how he is to live his life, how he is to fulfill his ministry, so that when he does stand before the Lord in glory, he will stand there in confidence, knowing that Christ is his life. And the glory will be unto the Lord and not unto us. This is an exhortation that we are to live every day knowing our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will one day appear, making the brightness of his glory manifest. We are to live looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing, one and the same thing. The appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is not an exhortation for us to sit and wait for Christ to return it is the opposite. It is an exhortation that we would live every day knowing our great God and our great Savior will one day appear, making the brightness of His glory known. It is not that we will necessarily be waiting when He comes. It is that our present time here, your present time here, is part of His present plan and present purpose for when He does return. What we do now in our present time of visitation absolutely matters for us today, right now. But it also matters for the next generation. 
And it matters for the generations that come after those generations. It matters for eternity. We must be faithful now as we look with hope to his future appearing and man, to his future appearing and manifestation of glory. We live with that hope. That's an expectant hope. That's our faith that motivates us to be faithful ourselves as God is faithful. Titus 2, 13 and 14, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Looking for, we are to live looking for the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. The Jews today are still waiting for their Messiah. To them, the, the Messiah is simply a king who is going to come and conquer all of their enemies and establish once again the glorious kingdom of David. It is a very small view. It's a very small view of God. It's a very small view of the work of God. We're not just waiting for the return of a king. We're looking for our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, who is the King of kings, who is the Lord of lords, who is indeed Lord of all. Just like our hope and his appearing are linked into one thought and event, the words God and Savior are linked here in this verse with one article in a similar way. In other words, this verse describes our great God and Savior as one person, and his name is Jesus Christ. There's not God and then a man named Jesus Christ. There's not God and a great teacher and a great prophet, as Islam would teach, or Mormons would teach, or Jehovah's Witnesses, or any other false religion would teach. What the Bible is teaching here is that our God and our Savior is in one person. It is in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul also writes that the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily in him. In other words, the fullness of the Father, the fullness of the Spirit, is found in the fullness of the Son and vice versa. This great God and Savior gave himself for us. Jesus was not just a man who died for us. He was the divine Son of God who died for us. He was, in fact, God personified who died for us. That's what the Bible teaches us. That's what, that's what false religions kick against. And why did Jesus give himself for us? Here's the good news. He gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. He gave himself for us to purify for himself his own special people who would be zealous for good works. 
You and I are to be zealous for good works, not so that we can be saved, but because we are saved. Not so that we can become children of God, but because we are and have been made children of God because our great God and Savior gave himself for us that we would be made children of God. He redeemed us from every lawless deed. He purified us by his blood to make us his own special people that we would be zealous for good works, not serving him from compulsion or threat or fear, but from a heart motivated in the very love that he has poured out and lavished upon us in Jesus Christ. It is by his grace that Christ has redeemed us from every lawless deed. It is by grace that he has purified us and made us his own special people, It is by grace that you and I can even be zealous for good works, much less perform them. What moves us must be love. And it is even grace that causes us to love him. The good news is that we love him because he first loved us. God, in his grace is the initiator. By his grace, he has poured his love into our hearts and given us the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. It is only by grace that you may cry, Abba, Father. It is not fear that motivates us, but love. Yes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, but it is not fear but love that bears up under all things. It's not fear, but it is love that never fails. It is love that must motivate us to obey and to speak these things. Titus 2, 15. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Exhort and rebuke with all authority, Paul writes to Pastor Titus. Paul's command to Titus is to speak these things, not just the easy, socially acceptable things, but all of these things, even the hard things. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. That means do not speak timidly, but speak boldly and courageously. Just as it means do not speak timidly, it does not mean speak rudely. It does not mean speak condescendingly. It doesn't mean that. But it absolutely means speak boldly and speak courageously. Don't speak out of your personal offense. Speak the truth in love. And speak it boldly. These are the things the pastor is to speak, which are proper for sound doctrine. In fact, it's the the things we are all to speak. We're all to speak things that are proper for sound doctrine. Paul writes, exhort. To exhort is to encourage. When we speak, we are to exhort or encourage those we are speaking to. He says to Titus, he commands Titus to rebuke. 
a much stronger word. The New Testament usage of this word is associated with reproving or correcting, exposing and convicting those things that are wrong. He is commanded to speak, to exhort, to rebuke with all authority. The pastor is to exhort and rebuke with all authority. A pastor's authority is in Christ, and it is in the word of Christ, the word, the holy word of God, the scripture. Jesus has given authority to the pastors, the elders, the shepherds of his flock, the church. They are to exercise it with, for the health and the protection of the congregation. I am commanded by God to exhort you, to rebuke you with all authority for your health and for your protection. There is no place for a pastor who fears his sheep and does not fear God. Let no one despise you, Paul commands Titus. In other words, the pastor is to command the respect that is due the man of God that Christ has placed over his flock. His meaning Christ. We are the sheep of his pasture. In giving respect to the Lord's shepherd, you give respect to the Lord. No true pastor who is called by God is leading because it was his idea, but because of the Lord's calling. And if you are despised, this applies not just to pastors, but it applies to every believer. If you are despised, then know that you answer to the Lord and not to those who despise you. When they make light of your faith, when they dismiss it and they dismiss you as less than serious because you actually believe in a God and believe the Bible, as they despise you, don't be personally offended. Be saddened because they're despising of you and their despising of the Lord is a reflection of their state of sin and death and darkness. And you and I will never answer to those who despise us. We will, though, answer to the Lord one day. So don't fear man. Fear God. And when you as a believer are rejected by men, when you experience tribulation in this world, be of good cheer and remember the words of Jesus. Let me quote them to you right now, John 16, 33, because we are living in a world where we will face more and more tribulation. We will face more people who despise us and our faith, and we need to remember these eternal words spoken by our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. John 16, 33, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That, my friends, is good news. Jesus has overcome the world. He commands us to go in his name, in his authority that covers all of heaven and all of earth and everything in them. May his grace keep us and teach us 
and prepare us for all things as we obey his word to see his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand. Today is Reformation Sunday. It's a day that means nothing to many, even many Christians. Most Christians are more aware of Halloween than they are Reformation Day. It's okay to know what Halloween is. Let's make sure we know what Reformation Day is also. Why? Because Reformation Day marks the spiritual victory over the forces of darkness that sought to hold God's people in bondage, using in most cases well-meaning servants of God submitted to lies instead of to the truth. We are facing the same temptation today. The lie is pervasive, and we are people who have and who know the truth Let us proclaim that truth so that truth would set men free. By the way, that spiritual victory over the forces of darkness didn't happen at Reformation Day. It happened at the cross. And what Reformation Day really signifies and brings to our remembrance and reforms us to understand is the victory that God brought to us at the cross. And it is a victory over all of his enemies, seen and unseen. As the fathers of the Reformation were, let us be courageous and committed to the truth, even when it hurts. Let the word of God be our final authority. Let us commit to proclaim a gospel that declares the truth that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. Let that truth evoke in us shouts of grace, grace to it. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you.